Hi, this is Nathan. My passion is to provide Christ-centered Bible teaching and resources that glorifies God and will encourage and equip you to grow spiritually and live a Christ-centered life. If you would like more resources to help you understand the Word of God and cultivate a passionate love for Jesus that turns the world upside down, please visit deeperchristian.com. Now, grab your Bible as we dive into this message from God's Word. Uh, Well, if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 22, uh, this is the uh, third week of Advent. Uh, I thought this week would be fun to just kind of give a Christmas meditation of sorts, Uh, but I wanted to kind of share a couple different stories and then talk about, obviously talk about Jesus. But I want to start in Genesis chapter 22. Uh, Obviously, chapter 22 is a really significant point in Abraham's life. Uh, We know that back in chapter 12, God called Abram and, and he followed and eventually landed in the promised land. And then through a whole bunch of trials and testings, uh, eventually at 100 years old, Abraham had his son Isaac. And it's an amazing reality that in chapter 21, the birth of Isaac happens. And then uh, he makes a treaty with Abimelech at the end of chapter 21. And as we enter into chapter 22, God is going to be asking Abraham an audacious request. If, if I can say it that way. And what I just want to do is I just want to read through the first part of Genesis chapter 22, and I want us to, to focus on it afresh through the lens of Jesus. And I, I know a lot of us have done this before, but there is such a beautiful picture of Jesus in this story. And again, it's all about this father who has a beloved son who is willing to take the son to a place of sacrifice. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 22, uh, this is what it reads. It says, After these things... God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So get this picture. God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, you have an only begotten son. You have a son whom you love. And he is your only son. Now, we know there is Ishmael, uh, but he didn't count. He was actually sent away. This is uh, the son of the promise. And so God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take the son of promise. I want you to take the son whom you love. I I want you to take this only begotten one. And I want you to go to a mountain, which I'm going to show you. And I want you to sacrifice him there. Uh, It's interesting that God tells him it's in the land of Moriah. In fact, it is Mount Moriah. And what's interesting is, uh, one scholar pointed out to me that the root word of the word Moriah in Hebrew has this idea of teaching. So even to a Jew, we know that there's going to be a lesson taught here. Isn't that a fun thought? I actually think it's a, a great picture or a great, great idea. So in verse 3, it says that Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split the wood of the burnt offering and arose and went to the place that God had told him. That on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there and worship and then return to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he took the fire in his hand with the knife. So the two of them walked on together. 
But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And Isaac said, Here is the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them went on together. So they came to the place that God had told them. So Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood, and he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on the wood. Then Abraham stretched out his hand and took his knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Verse 12. Then he said, do not lay your hands on the boy or do anything to him, because now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up as a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is this day in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. What an incredible story. Again, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take your only begotten, and I want you to go to this mountain that I'm going to show you, and I want you to offer him as a burnt, uh, as a burnt offering. And isn't it interesting, it says that they literally traveled for three days. I actually don't think that's by accident. And if you think about this in an abstract, kind of abstract kind of a way, you realize that the day that Abraham was told to sacrifice your son, there had to have been a brokenness in his, in his heart. Because this was the promise. Uh, this was the son. And in one sense, just the fact that Abraham took the first step on the way to Mount Moriah, you realize that he had already committed, I'm going to do this thing. And I think the writer of Hebrews plays on this idea because you realize that on the third day, Abraham got back his son. Then a neat thought that the son actually was brought back to life on the third day. So they travel for three days. He's about to sacrifice Isaac. And then the angel says, no, 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 don't sacrifice. Just testing and then gives him back the son. So in in an abstract sense, Isaac was brought back to life, quote-unquote, on the third day. And I think the writer of Hebrews picks up on that idea because in Hebrews chapter 11, listen listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. In chapter 11, verse 17, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he, whom he had received the promises, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac, you, uh, through Isaac shall your offering be named. And he considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So it's interesting to me that even the writer of Hebrews kind of plays in this idea of, you know, in a strange way, he did get him back after three days. And again, this is a parallel. This is a, a shadow of Jesus, the, the only begotten son. So as you continue walking through this, it's interesting that in verse 5, again, Abraham looks at the the servants and says, hey, stay right here. Isaac and I are going to go up on the mountain, and we are going to worship. And by the way, this is the first time worship is even mentioned in Scripture, which means it's really significant. And hey, we're going to go worship, and we are going to come back. And I love Abraham's audacious faith, knowing that I don't know how God's going to do it, but he's going to give me Isaac. Because he is the son of promise. And I know that the promise is coming through Isaac. And he doesn't have kids yet. So I don't know how God's going to do this. And of course, the writer of Hebrews says, maybe he's just going to raise him from the dead. That that if if I have to kill Isaac, God will give me back, give him back to me. So however that's going to happen, I have no idea. But we are going to return. 
So I just love, I love Abraham's audacious faith there. So in verse 6, it says that Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, which he had already cut, and he laid it on his son Isaac. Now, I don't know why I never picked up on, on, on this whole thing, but this whole time, I, I've studied this before, several scholars presume that Isaac is probably somewhere in the, you know, like 12 to 15 years old. That's what I'd always read. But as I was looking at this again, I started noticing that's actually impossible. And the reason being is in order to have enough wood for a sacrifice, you realize that it, uh, from what some scholar says, that if you were going to have a burnt sacrifice in this manner, uh, you were going to, it's going to take two or three hours of burning with a big fire. As such, that's a lot of wood. And a 10-year-old kid, a 12-year-old kid, is probably not going to be able to lift up that much wood. Abraham is 100 and something years old at this point. He can barely hold the knife. That's not what it says. But he carried the knife. So we at least know he can carry the knife. So I was starting to do some research, and it's interesting. Josephus says that, uh, that Isaac was 25. The old rabbis used to teach that Isaac was 37. And the reason being is because in chapter 23, Sarah dies when she was 127, which is when Isaac was 37. And some have speculated that it, she died because of a, basically a broken heart or a heart attack because the moment she heard that Isaac was going to be sacrificed, she died. Now, there's no evidence for that. But that's what the old rabbis used to teach back in the time of Jesus. So you have this gap of time between the ages of 25 and 37 that most scholars say that's how old Isaac was. Now, I would not be surprised, as I've thought this through, that when we get, and we don't know, so I'm not making claims, but it would not surprise me when we get to heaven and God's revealing all the stuff that we missed in Scripture that we find out that Isaac was probably right around 33 years old. In fact, Adam Clark makes that statement in his commentary that Isaac was probably 33. Now, we can't prove that. It would just make sense to me, though, since this is a foreshadow of the son, the perfect sacrifice. Again, I can't prove that. Either way, though, we recognize that Isaac is probably in late 20s, early 30s, which tells you something about his character. Because you realize that here is Isaac. He's now carrying his own wood for sacrifice. What does that sound like? Doesn't that sound like Jesus who's carrying his own wood for the sacrifice? Up a mountain? So here is this beloved son who on his back is carrying his own wood for the sacrifice. And a lot of wood at that. And as he's climbing up the mountain, he asks, oh, by the way, the word lad, before I forget this, the reason we even think he's young or the reason some scholars say he's young is because of that word in verse 5, boy or lad. But what's interesting is that word in Hebrew, if you look at other places that's used in Hebrew, Sometimes it's used for babies. Sometimes it's used for young men. Sometimes it's used for servants. In other words, we, it's, it's not age-specific. In fact, it's the exact same word as in verse 5, the word that's translated in my translation, young men. So it says that Abraham said to his young men, that Hebrew word is the exact same word as the boy, and I will come back. Does it make sense? So we, we, keep, we keep thinking probably young, but he's probably a young adult. As such, I, I just find this amazing. Again, it speaks of his character because if he's climbing up the mountain with his own wood and he looks at his father and says, Dad, uh, we have a problem because I see the wood. You're holding the fire and the knife. Where is the sacrifice? And you realize that when they get to the top of the mountain and they establish the altar, 
Isaac easily could have overpowered Abraham. Even if he's a young teenager, he could probably overpower him. Abraham's in his mid, I mean, early hundreds. I'm not going to make any comments. But, but you realize that here's this, here's this likely you know, late 20s, early 30s guy, and obviously he had to surrender himself to the will of his father. And I think it's a beautiful picture of the character of, of Isaac because he trusted in the nature and the character of his dad. Dad, I have no idea why you're, why you're binding me on top of this altar, but I trust you. That I'm, I'm, if that's what it takes, I'm willing. Isn't that a beautiful picture of just surrender and trust and knowing the heart of your dad? Which again is exactly the same thing that Jesus did. That he knew where he's heading and, hey, God, I, I, Father, I trust you. And not that I want to go through it, but I'm willing for your purpose and for your plan. And again, <clears throat> Abraham's statement to his son is interesting. In verse 8, he says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. It's interesting. One Hebrew scholar pointed out the fact that, that, that in that verse, the Hebrew grammar is totally off. Uh, in Hebrew grammar, you always start with the verb, then you have the subject. So Johnny hit the ball, right, is how we would say it in English. In Hebrew, it's hit Johnny ball, right, because you put the verb first. It's interesting, in, in this verse, the Hebrew is backwards. The subject, God, is first, and then it's the action of provision. And the Hebrew scholars point out the fact that it's an overemphasis on the fact that God has made provision. God is the one initiating this thing. God is going to be supplying, hey, we can trust him. Is what, is what Abraham is saying. Isn't that encouraging? That as they're walking up the mountain and Abraham knows what he has to do, and Isaac's like, what are we going to do? Abraham says, we can trust our God. That he is going to provide. He is going to supply all that we need. Hey, we can just rest in his own provision. And of course, he gets to the top, he takes the knife, and here's Isaac bound. And as he's about to bring the knife down, God says, wait, I have made provision. You don't have to sacrifice your son. And he provides a ram, which is in interesting. It's a, you know, it, it's a sheep. But in verse 14, Abraham looks at this place, and he calls this place Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will provide. That God has seen in advance, seen all that is needed, and he's made provision for it. And isn't it interesting that that mountain is known as Jehovah-Jireh? That the mountain is known as the place where the Lord will provide. Now we know that this is obviously speaking of the coming Messiah and the fact that there's coming a day when a father will provide the ultimate sacrifice. And even though he stayed the hand of Abraham in this scene, there's coming a day where he will not stay his own hand and allow his beloved son to be killed. Why? As the provision now, I don't think it's by accident. In fact, I know it's not. That God led him to Mount Moriah. And if you're astute with your geography, you understand that Mount Moriah is Jerusalem. And the reason that it's profound is you realize that from this point forward, God, God looks at Moses and begins to institute the, sacrifice, the, the sacrificial system. And by the time that David establishes the kingdom in, in Jerusalem, it was on that same mountain where thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lambs were sacrificed. 
And it was also on that same mountain where Jesus, this beloved son, took the wood upon his own back, climbed up the very same mountain, and in the very same spot that Abraham was sacrificing Isaac, Jesus was sacrificed. And he became the provision that God was giving to the world. Now, I think that is incredible. What an amazing picture of the provision of God. Now, take all of that, and if you have your Bibles, uh, flip over to uh, Luke chapter 2. So here is Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. Uh, here is Jesus, Jesus, the one who is provided. Here is Jesus, the, the perfect son who, who carries his own wood for his own sacrifice up a mountain to the place of provision so that God could provide. Now, in Luke chapter 2, uh, we come into the, the Advent season, this idea of the coming of the king. And in chapter 2 of Luke, Luke is recording the birth of Jesus. And I, I love this whole scene. Uh, in, in verse 7, of, of course, you know the story, but because of the census, Joseph and Mary come 80 miles south and go down to Bethlehem, and there's no room in the inn, and, and so they find this little stable thing or a barn or a, a cave or the bottom of a house. It's been speculated what it actually was. But they found some place where the animals were, and uh, Mary gives birth to Jesus. Now, what was Jesus' name? What, what name did they give Jesus? Well, obviously Jesus. And why did they give him the name Jesus? Well, because the angel said, give him the name Jesus. Because what does Jesus even mean? It means God is salvation. It means the Lord brings salvation. He provides. He's the provision, folks. So as you come into chapter 2 then, uh, look at verse 7. Uh, this is Luke 2, verse 7. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So could you imagine? Here's this scene. Here is Mary. She's over in the, 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 the stable, the corrals, the barn, the cave, whatever this may even have been. And uh, she gives birth. And where are they going to put her? Where are they going to put him? Well, I don't know. They, they wrap him in swaddling clothes. They swaddle him in. And then they just lay him in the manger because that's, hey, there's, there's some space, right? It's the feeding trough. At the exact same time in verse 8, it says that in that same area, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over the flock at night. Now, you need to understand something about Bethlehem. Bethlehem has always been a shepherding town. It's right on the border of the wilderness, and it is the best part of the Israel land for shepherding. Uh, you don't want the sheep in your agriculture area, right? Because you don't want them to eat your own food. You, you want them to eat all the little shrubbery stuff. And so Bethlehem, from the time of even before David, was the place of shepherds. And what's interesting is by the time the temple was established up in Jerusalem, Bethlehem became known as the place of the priestly shepherds. So this was a place where they would, they would raise the livestock that they were going to kill for the sacrifices up in Jerusalem, five miles away up the mountain. And so here they are, they're, they're taking care of all these sheep, and these shepherds were likely priestly shepherds. Now we know that shepherding in this culture was the, was the lowest uh, position in the family, and it was often given to the youngest person. And so likely these, these, these shepherds were not old men, these shepherds were likely teenagers or younger. So God can use teenagers. Oh, it's encouraging. Right? So here are these teenagers. And uh, that was supposed to be a joke. So here are, these, here are these teenagers or these kids, 
And, and they're, these, they're these priestly shepherds. And they're taking care of these flocks that are eventually going to be used as, as the sacrifice up in Jerusalem. So look at this. In verse 9, an angel of the Lord appears to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were very afraid. But the angel said to them, Listen, do not fear, for I bring you good news of great joy, which will be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a company of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God of the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came hurrying and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they, were, they made widely known the word which was told to them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at what the shepherds told them. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So do you see the scene? Here, here are these shepherds out in the middle of the fields, probably you know, a ways away from Bethlehem. This angel shows up, and of course they're scared to death. And the angel says, hey, don't fear. I'm actually bringing you great news. Well, what's the great news? There's a baby. Well, how on earth is that good news? Oh, he's the Messiah. And then the angel says, hey, I want you to go to Bethlehem, and I want you to find the place where, where this baby's at, and this is going to be a sign to you. You're going to find that same baby lying in a manger in swaddling clothes. Now, here's the question. Why on earth would that be the sign? Well, if you understood the priestly shepherd thing, that actually makes a ton of sense. See, what the priestly shepherds used to do is that when it was time to bring the sacrifice up to Jerusalem, what they would do is they would take the year-old lamb, that, that perfect sacrifice, the one that had no spots or blemishes or, or broken bones, they would take that little lamb and they would bring it over into a feeding trough in a little manger and they would lay it in the manger and then they would swaddle that little lamb so that all of its little legs are close to its body so that they could pick it up and like carry it to Jerusalem. And the reason they would do that is there was a chance, if you can imagine, if, if, if you just tied a little you know, neck, uh, rope around its neck and it was you know, dragging it off to Jerusalem, that along the way, if that little lamb stumbled and broke the leg, it could no longer be a sacrifice because it had to be a pure and spotless sacrifice. And so what they do? In order to preserve and protect the sacrifice, they would swaddle it in a manger so that they could carry it off into Jerusalem. So could you imagine the profundity of this thing? When an angel comes to a priestly shepherd and says, wow, there's a baby born. It's the Messiah. Well, how am I going to know? Here's what the Messiah is going to look like. You're going to find him as a little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. So what would that have been saying to these shepherds? Oh, this is a lamb for sacrifice. That he is the provision. That, that he is the one that's going to be led to Jerusalem and given as a sacrifice. And that's exactly what you see. During Passover, 33 and a half years later, here is the lamb, right? Jesus, the perfect lamb. And what is the lamb doing? Oh, he's standing in front of the Sanhedrin, this, this council of priests. And they're poking at him and they're scrutinizing him and they're testing him. Why? 
well, to see if there's any blemish in them. And do you know what's happening at the very same time that Jesus is being questioned by the Sanhedrin? This is a couple days before Passover or the day before Passover that one of the priests would go down to Bethlehem and he would go through all the flocks and he would scrutinize them and analyze them and they were trying to find the perfect lamb for the Passover lamb for that year. So of course everyone would bring their Passover lambs, but there was one key Passover lamb for all the land. And so think about this. While Jesus was being scrutinized and analyzed and questioned, there was a priest down in Bethlehem scrutinizing, analyzing, questioning these little lambs to see which one was perfect. And isn't it interesting that Jesus, just like Isaac, the beloved son, with wood on his back, climbed up Mount Moriah to this spot called Calvary and was literally sacrificed on our behalf. And God did not stay his hand. Why? Because Jesus was the provision. And at the same, this is so brilliant to me, at the same exact moment that Jesus gave up his life, right, it was, was it three in the afternoon, the ninth hour? At that exact same moment, down at the temple, they blew the big shofar to announce, hey, this is the big sacrifice. And they took the knife, the priest took the knife to the Passover lamb and slit its throat, and sacrificed the Passover lamb. So the writer of Hebrews picks up on all that and goes, do you know what Jesus was? He is our Passover lamb. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the provision. He is that which God has said, on that mountain I will provide. And what was provided on that mountain? The perfect sacrifice. Do you see how that, I'll just, that is beautiful to me. Just the symmetry, the, how God wove this thing together. And that was all happening on that mountain. And what was the sign? Oh, that baby is going to be a perfect sacrifice, which is what he was. Now, if you take all of that and bring it into this season, we're, we're in the third week of Advent. Of course, Advent means, you know, the, the, the coming, right? It's, it's the one who is, he's on his way. And we are celebrating the fact that Jesus was born, that he came but you realize the reason we even celebrate his birth is actually not because of the birth. I mean, I'm excited for the birth. I'm not trying to downplay the birth. But the reason we celebrate in this season the birth is actually not because of the birth. It's because of the fact that what the birth leads to is the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon us. So really what we are celebrating this season is not just a little baby. Uh, it's not just, well, let's sing some Christmas songs and give some gifts. And that's not what we're celebrating. We are, cele- we are celebrating Jesus, folks. That, that we are celebrating the reality, the life, the fullness of who he is. Not, not just his birth. We're celebrating his life. We're, we're celebrating his sacrifice, the provision that he made upon the cross on our behalf. We're celebrating the fact that he rose from the dead, which is not merely a celebration for Easter. This is a celebration for every day of the year. Just like Christmas is not a celebration one day a year. Ask Nick. Christmas is not a one day a year celebration. It's an every day of the year celebration, which is why you're to wear Christmas socks all year round. Amen. Amen. For two people in here. Right? Christmas, Easter, this is an everyday celebration. Why? Because it's Jesus, folks. 
And can I freshly remind us, as we are walking into this season, and as we are celebrating the Advent, His coming, as we're celebrating the reality of Christmas, let us not forget that the reason for this season isn't merely a birth. The reason for the season is life. The reason for this season is His death. The reason for this season is His resurrection. The reason for this season is His ascension. The reason for this season is His outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon us so that we can actually live out the Christian life. That's the reason for the season. What's the reason for the season? Jesus. The fullness of Jesus. And let us not forget that reality. So we are celebrating in this season our salvation and hope in Jesus. So, Not only can you sing Christmas songs in this season, you should be singing Easter songs in this season. Just like in the Easter season, you should be singing Christmas songs. Amen. For two of you in here. Does that make any sense? There's this profound reality that I think as a culture, and of course as a culture we're so wrapped up in consumerism, and this whole season becomes about me, right? Right? And it's a selfishness, inward focus, and it's a... But even as a church, for some reason we forget and we just focus on a little baby. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just, it's incomplete. We are to celebrate a baby, but it's not the baby. I mean, it's the baby, but not the baby. That we're celebrating, yeah, the birth, but it's really the, the life and all that he accomplished, which is focus on the cross. That's what we're celebrating this season. Okay, let me take it one step further. You realize this is the Advent season, meaning it's the, the season of coming. What we're celebrating is his coming. Can I also encourage, encourage us not to merely celebrate the fact that Jesus came 2,000 years ago, but that he is still coming? And the reason I, like, I love this season and the reason we celebrate Advent, the reason we celebrate Christmas, is not just a reminder of what happened 2,000 years ago, It's not just a celebration of a baby. Again, it's a celebration of his life and what he's been doing and the the focus of the cross and where he is heading. That's all true. But it's also the Advent season is not just his coming past tense. It is his coming future tense. That he is coming again, folks. There is still an Advent to come. That, That we should be celebrating his second coming in this season. And I don't know how many times I've noticed this in our culture I, I can't honestly tell you how many times I've heard sermons on the second coming, on the judgment. And I know we're a little unique in this room. But just as a whole, it seems like the church has kind of gone away from, from that kind of language. But you realize for 2,000 years, the church and the Spirit of God has been praying a prayer, which is, come, Lord Jesus, come which is in Revelation twenty two seventeen, It's that word, Maranatha, right? It's come, Lord Jesus, come. That the Spirit and the bride has had this yearning deep within us. That the Spirit and the bride has just been, has this anxiousness within us. There's this, there's this craving within our very being, which is what? Oh, come again, come again, come again. Hey, we're just waiting. I mean, we're no, we know it's soon because it's been soon for 2,000 years, which means we are really soon. I mean, this thing is just around the corner. And wherever you want to stand on end time stuff, all, what we do know for sure is that we are one day closer today. Now, I honestly think we are really close. 
And I think I can biblically prove that. Because Paul says he was really close. <laughs> Which means I'm even closer than Paul. But hey, when you look at what the world's doing right now and where the world's going, all the craziness, we are in the birth pain season, folks. The stuff that Jesus said, hey, watch for this. And when you start to see these things happen, it's, it's not the end. It's, just, it's, it's almost to the end. It's the birth pain stuff. Now, we've been in that season for a long time, but hey, we're in the birth pain season, which means he is coming again. So can I encourage you and remind you that in this Advent season, let us not merely celebrate 2,000 years ago. We should. We should celebrate that. But hey, let's just not celebrate 2,000 years ago. Let us celebrate the fact that he, he's, he's coming again. He's right on the horizon. We're, we're on the brink of time when he's returning. How exciting is that? And maybe this is the generation when he returns. What a privilege we'd have, wouldn't it? To see the second coming of Christ? Please stay seated. Contain yourselves. In this Advent season, could we have that same prayer? Not just, Lord, we thank you and praise you for for what happened 2,000 years ago and for your birth and your life and your death and your resurrection and your ascension and your outpouring, but Lord, we are going to celebrate you in this Advent season for the Advent that is still to come. That just as you provided on the mountain, so you are still providing, and you are still Jehovah Jireh, and you're still going to be making provision. And ultimately, that's going to find its fulfillment in his return, folks, that he is going to restore and make all things new, that he is doing something. So let us celebrate, not just this first, but let us celebrate his second coming. So that being the case, let me give you a warning. You realize that if it is true that Jesus is returning soon, which he is, can I encourage us not to be caught unawares? Could I encourage us not just to be lackadaisical and just passive in our Christianity? Could I encourage us not just to twiddle our thumbs and you know live just like the culture and think we're in just because we attend church? Because you realize that if he is returning which he is, and it's soon, which it is, then we as the bride of Christ should make ourselves ready. It's interesting to me, and you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus is talking about his, his return, his second coming. And in chapter 24, the disciples are asking, hey, what are the signs to come and all that kind of stuff? And, and Jesus walks through some of these signs but then what he does is he, he goes into four parables at the end of chapter 24 through chapter 25. And he gives four distinct parables of his return. And just as I've been looking at them afresh this week, I've been deeply convicted. Because as you look at the four parables, the first one, uh, which is the parable of the faithful and the unfaithful servant, which starts in Matthew 24, verse 45, you have these servants. So you have faithful ones and you have unfaithful ones. And the second parable, which is chapter 25, verse 1, is the parable of the ten virgins. Right? You have five good virgins, you have five bad virgins. Uh, in chapter 25, verse 14, you have the parable of the talents, where these individuals all get different amounts, and they all you know, do their works differently. Two of them are praised, one of them is chastened. And then you have the fourth parable, which is uh, chapter 25, verse 31, which is the sheeps and goats. Here is the insight that I thought was actually scary to me. 
Isn't it interesting in all four of those parables, again, they're all in the context of end time stuff. In all four of those parables, both of those groups presumed they were okay. And both of those groups presumed they were in. And both of those groups thought that they had everything fine for them until the end and the judgment. And at that point, there was no time to, to fix anything. So in the first parable, you have the faithful and unfaithful servant. They were both servants in the household. And yet one was kicked out. Uh, in the second parable, you had the five good virgins that had oil in their lamp and five virgins who did not have enough oil. But in both cases, they presumed they were fine. And the five who did not have the oil comes to the house going, hey, let us in. No, you weren't ready. You thought you were ready, but you weren't ready. In, in the parable of the talents, they all received money. But in the end, one was proven that he didn't use it well. In the fourth parable, sheeps and goats, they're all a part of the flock. And they all presume, hey, I'm in the flock, so I must be good. Until the end and the judgment, and the goats realize that though they've been acting like they were in the flock, they were actually not a part of the flock. Isn't that a scary thought? That you can go to church and presume you're in and actually think you're comfortable and, woo, I'm fine, I'm good to go, and in the end realize you never made it. That's a scary thought to me. Well, I, I, I know the songs. Good. Well, I mean, I, I never miss a Sunday. Good. I pay the preacher $50. I hope you would. But just because any of those things are happening in your life doesn't mean you actually have any life. And that's a scary thought to me. Because you, as you look at the modern church, there's a lot of people who are attending the country club of our culture known as church. And yet they have no life. And it's a scary thought to me that in the end, in the judgment, there's going to be a lot of people who were in the club, who thought they were in the flock, and in the end are going to find that they missed it. Folks, he is returning soon. And we are celebrating the advent of Christ, not just the first, but also the second. And we who are in the body of Christ, could I freshly encourage us to find ourselves at the foot of the cross in repentance? Could, could we, like Psalm 24 says, uh, Psalm 24, verse 3 and 4 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? It is he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. It's not the one who makes an idol of the things of the culture. It's the one who has been purified and cleansed, both in his heart and his hands. It's interesting, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 27, Paul's in that section talking about husbands and wives. But listen to what he says about Jesus. He says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Do you know what our lives are supposed to be? without spot or blemish, is to be holy unto the Lord, that we have clean hands and a pure heart. And as the writer of Hebrews says, he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Why? Because today is the day of salvation. There is still time to embrace the reality of Christ. 
There is still time to have his life. There is still time to have his fullness. There is still time to embrace his salvation. But the time to get in the ark is not when the waters are flowing, when the rain is coming, because the doors are shut. When do you find salvation in the ark? Before. And we were at a season where the waters are about to come. There is a judgment to come, folks. Are we going to find ourselves in Jesus? And I know that for everyone in this room, it's easy to be like, well, I, go to, I, I, I attend at the church at Ellerslie. So I'm good. But could I, could I encourage us, just like Paul encouraged the Corinthians in uh, 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Could I encourage all of us to let the Holy Spirit search and try our hearts? Could, could I encourage all of us to, to let the Spirit of God poke any and every area of our heart and our minds that is not in alignment with, with Scripture? Could, could I encourage us to test ourselves, to examine, to see if there's anything in our life that should not be there? And if there is, could we find ourselves at the foot of the cross? And the tree that we celebrate this year, could it not just merely be this evergreen? Could, could we celebrate a cross? Because that is what everything is pointing to. Can we celebrate not just his birth, but his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his outpouring? Can we remember that the Advent that we are celebrating is not merely his first coming, as great and as phenomenal as that is, but it's the fact that he is returning again. And as such, we as the church must be a pure and spotless bride. And we, over the last generations or so, have become more like the world than like the church. And though we are in the church, we actually look just like the world. And how many times in the Old Testament did the prophets stand up and say, Repent! Quit looking like the world! Quit thinking like the world! Quit talking like the world! Quit having that idolatry of heart just like the world! Repent! Repent! I think that same message needs to be spoken today to the church. Because we have prostituted ourselves with the world. So if I can encourage all of us, Repent! The Lord is coming soon. And though this is a season of celebration, may this also be a season of warning for our souls to say, am I really in? Am I really pressing into the grand reality of Jesus Christ? Am I a part of the flock and presume because I'm a part of the flock, I'm good to go? Really, we should be asking, am I a sheep or am I a goat? Am I a faithful servant or an unfaithful servant? Am I a virgin with oil in the lamp or am I a virgin without oil in the lamp? What am I doing with the talent? This Christmas season, can we press into Jesus afresh? Can we not only celebrate him, but that which he's wanting to do in our lives? The fact that he's willing to be birthed in a stable known as us, full of muck and mire, and yet his desire is not to leave us that way. That his desire is to make us a pure and spotless temple for his dwelling place. What an amazing reality, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord, Lord, we do want to celebrate you. Lord, we don't want to merely give you a head nod. We don't want to merely sing songs about you. We don't merely want to just go through the motions and not have the life. Lord, we pray that this Christmas Advent season would truly be a season of celebration, a season of rejoicing, that you are our provision that all that we need for life and for godliness is found in one place. It's you. 
So Lord, I just, I just pray that, that we would celebrate loudly, that we would celebrate with great joy, that as the angels told the, the shepherds, this is great news, good news of great joy because of the peace that is being proclaimed. Lord, the reality is the gospel has come. The provision has been made. The sacrifice has been given. So Lord, let us celebrate boldly this season. And Lord, let us not just celebrate your birth. Let us not just sing songs about a babe. Lord, let us sing songs about your life. Let us praise you for your death. Let us rejoice in your resurrection. Let us abound in the thought of your ascension and now that you're seated at the right hand of the Father. Lord, let us be in constant amazement that you took your spirit and dumped it upon us and now we can be filled with your very presence. Lord, let us celebrate in this season the fact that yes, you're willing to be born in a stable of muck known as us. People full of sin. People who while we were yet sinners and shaking our fists in rebellion towards you, you died for us. But Lord, let us not forget that while you're willing to be born in this stable known as us, you refuse to leave us that way. That you want us a pure and spotless bride. You want to make us holy and fit for the dwelling place of God. For do we not know that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God lives within us? So Lord, may that be our celebration this season. But Lord, let us not forget the fact that you are still coming that there is still an advent to come. And Lord, as such, as the time is growing shorter, Lord, would you put such a burden on your bride for repentance? Jesus, would you, would you move by your spirit in the church today? Not just this little local body, but your church worldwide. And would you, would you bring such a heaviness and a focus of yourself and the standard of the perfect standard of your word, that when we are measured against it, against it, we realize how much we need you because we are not as we should be. Lord, don't let us justify sin in our lives. Lord, don't let us just presume that we must be okay because you are a God of love. Lord, don't let us just live just like the culture and, and presume we're, we're fine because we're quote-unquote in the flock. Lord, I pray that you would cause the church to examine itself that through your spirit, Lord, that you would point out any and every area of shadow, of darkness, of pollution, of pride, of impurity. Lord, make your bride a pure and spotless bride. Lord, may we be sheep and not goats. May we, may we be virgins with oils in our lamps, not virgins without. Lord, make us ready. And Lord, oh, hasten the day that you come. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. Lord, we know that the Spirit and the Bride have been praying it for 2,000 years, but Lord, we join the chorus and we say, come. The time is getting short. The time is drawing nigh. And it should not be a time of fear. It should be a time of rejoicing because you are returning. The King is coming again. Lord, may in this season we truly celebrate you. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Thank you that this season is a reminder that every day of every single year, you are to be our celebration.
Just give you the praise and the glory in your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen.